Good morning. So often happens for me that uh, I come to the gathering of God's people and we spend time together in song and I quickly realize how much my soul needs this, uh, needs this gathering and needs to hear the voices of brothers and sisters alongside of me proclaiming uh, what God has done and his goodness to us. And uh, just again, God has been kind to us this morning already. Um, I'm reminded of uh, Charles Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth. Uh, and that's, that's what we get to do week after week, which is what makes this the best part of the week. And I'm just grateful to be a part of it with you. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm just looking at Cappy because Cappy often tells me she regularly each year does like a through the Bible reading program. And when she does that and in January when she reads those first couple chapters of Genesis, even if the plan tells her to read chapter 3 that first day, she won't do it because she just wants one day where it seems all good and there's no problems. (laughs) She puts it off. But we are in chapter 3, Cappy, so buckle up. We'll be good. Uh, So we have been, as a church now, studying through the beginning of our Bibles, uh, coming to an understanding of God, proclaiming all things into existence for his glory. We've seen the, the creation of his most precious possession of all human beings, placing them in the garden paradise to live out in his provision and care for them. Uh, and then last week, we, we began to look at chapter 3, uh, and the first half of that chapter describes the, the fall of man, right? Their disobedience to God's command to not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. This one tree you shall not eat. And the serpent comes and deceives the woman uh, in the presence of her husband, and they both partake, they eat, they disobey. And as a result, they immediately experience shame and guilt, right? We studied this last week. They they cover themselves. They hide from God. They are afraid. And God comes to them and questions them and brings conviction to them. Uh, And then this morning, our focus, our attention is going to be uh, mainly on the second half of this chapter. So uh, this is what follows that, and we'll begin reading in chapter, or in verse 14. This is God's holy and authoritative word for us this morning. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. I'm a, a big fan of uh, films that tell the story of, of epic journeys, right? Those hero stories, those, those epic quests in where there's major conflict risen and the hero or heroes must overcome the conflict and redeem what is lost to bring victory to what is broken. And what I've noticed is in, in the great uh, stories, these great films that capture these epic journeys, they often have a, an origin story, a, a backstory that fills in uh, an understanding of who the main characters are, what the conflict is, and, and what they must do to be victorious. All the great films have this, the, the Lord of the Rings, the Indiana Jones trilogy. Um, one of my favorites is the 2014 animated superhero film, Big Hero 6. Uh, this film captures one of these epic quests. There's a group of young, kind of science nerdy type kids that come together after they have been attacked by a supervillain and they realize they need to overcome. They gather together with the help of Baymax, who is an inflatable healthcare robot, and they decide they must conquer this supervillain. And, and as the, ca the characters gather together after being attacked by the villain, they gather at uh, one of the, the main characters who's kind of this, um, this goofy sidekick named Fred. Um, but he lives in this mansion, and they begin to put together the pieces of 
of what the conflict is and what they must do. And as they're doing that, Fred, who has an obsession with comic books, he, he begins to get excited and he recognizes the gravity of what's going on. And in that moment, he says, can you see it? Can you feel it? Our origin story is here. And then they go on to become superheroes and conquer the villain and save the city and ba-la-la-la-la. <laughs> the text that we have before us this morning, uh, it serves us as the origin story for the greatest dilemma in history and the greatest salvation to be provided. Recorded in this text, we have, we have the pieces placed together of, of our origin story. So as we, we study through this and look through this, uh, there's a little bit of me that wants you to, to say, you know, can you see it? Can you feel it? Our origin story is here. And as we study through this text, we will see that, that God is responding to the disobedience of his most precious creatures. And God is bringing appropriate judgment because of their disobedience. This text, it's not merely a record of history, right? It's not just a recording of the things that took place. What we have before us is an explanation for the why of the way things are. We look around in our lives, what we experience, what we observe in the, the world around us, and what do we see? We see so much brokenness and heartache and hardship, and we see so much blessing and fruitfulness. And this origin story text colors in for us the why of what we experience in our lives in the day to day. This chapter, we can make no mistake about it, this chapter is about, is about sin. It's about the disobedience of God's children. We understand the world is broken. We, we know this, right? We experience this. We feel this. We see this. We weep over this. And here we find the epilogue of the story of God redeeming what has been broken, fixing what has been lost. We understand in this text fundamentally an understanding of human history, of our own personal existence, of spiritual realities, and of God coming forward to bring judgment, yes, but to also bring redemption. And as we see these things, our main point this morning is that it should call in us an appropriate response. The main point, the only appropriate response to what we will see, the display of God's mercy through judgment is complete trust in him, devotion to him, and trust in his word. In this text, we see the seriousness of sin, the necessity of judgment, and the marvel of mercy. So let's, let's take a closer look. We're going to look at this in, in three sections. 
Three sections. We're going to look at the cursing, the covering, and the completing. So first, the cursing. And your Bible may have the text written slightly different than the rest. It's not going from margin to margin. That's because there is a a sense of capturing the poetic in the cursing, in the judgment that comes from God. Let's first look at God's judgment on the serpent in verse 14. God curses the serpent for his lies and deceptions, for being used, as we studied last week, by Satan. And God curses him and says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God tells the serpent that you will be forever marked as a symbol of God's judgment for creating the context for rebellion. The animal itself receives the curse of God and is forever cast down on its belly as a symbol of God's judgment. And and God says, you will go about and the dust you shall eat. Throughout the biblical text, this phrase of dust, is, it's, it's a demonstration of, of one's defeat over their enemies. God declares that this, this rebellion, this, this shoving away of God's good rule in the garden, that this animal would be cursed and forever marked as a symbol of one cast down and defeated. We saw closely last week in verse 15 what has come to be known as the first gospel, that the curse continues. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In verse 15, God moves from the the animal controlled by Satan himself and talks about the enmity that will be placed in between him and the woman and their offspring. And what we see here is is the entrance of strife into the creation, of conflict. There was no strife, there was no conflict before this point. This curse brings these things into the creation as a result of their disobedience. And, And we know, we have experienced this in our own lives. We have difficulties in our lives. We have strife. We have conflict that has been brought on. And God gives a prophetic promise of the singular seed of the woman who will be the one to bruise the head of Satan. There will be a defeat because of what he has done. God continues in verse 16, and brings curse upon the woman. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Pain is promised in the cursing. Pain enters into the creation. An increase of pain for childbearing. Having children is painful. 
Any man knows, if you've ever been on the labor and delivery floor of a hospital, that's not a hallway you just wander around in. Pain is promised because of sin. It has entered the world and has been perpetuated through the days. Not only pain, but relational conflict. God, in the beginning of our Bibles, in chapter 2, we studied this a few weeks ago, in his wonderful design, has designed male and female to exist in complementary relationship for his glory and the reflection of that to the creation. And because of rebellion against God in sin, a curse comes that that, that relationship will will be meaning to continue in its purpose, but there will be difficulty in it. There will be conflict in that complementary design of God. Her desire will be contrary to her husband, and he will rule over in ways not designed for God's purposes. Pain and relational conflict, strife, has come into the world. And then God addresses Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. God curses the ground because of him and says that there will be painful toil in the work for the man. The earth itself, the, the paradise that was to be for his pleasure and provision is now cursed from that day onward and will be a point of struggle and difficulty for the man. Work is not cursed. Work itself is part of God's design at the outset. The curse is the difficulty and painful toil that must be a result of sin for fruit to be had. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of this ongoing curse on the creation in this way. He says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What's Paul saying? He's picking up the curse that has been brought because of their sin on the creation itself. Thorns and thistles as a result of sin. This verse comes so clear to my mind every time I'm weeding the garden. Sweating under the hot sun. Yelling at Adam. (laughs) God brings painful toil for what should be gracious provision from God. Adam will experience this. And then, verse 19, he says as... Sweat of your face, you will eat bread. 
And then God says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 19 makes clear the promised judgment of death. Chapter 2, when God gave the command not to eat of the tree of which he commanded them not to eat, he said what? Or you will surely die. Adam will physically die as a result of sin. The brokenness and destruction sin has brought into the world is seen and felt, displayed in physical death that will perpetuate through the ages. We, we experience this and know this ourselves. We, we know that there is sorrow because of physical death. We have probably all of us been at a funeral at some point. Even though we, we know that death is a regular part of our human experience, we have been in a funer funeral and we've all felt this, it just wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Strife, enmity, pain, relational conflict, hard toil and physical death are a result of their disobedience. We live in a world that is broken. Sin has caused it. Through the cursings, we see this great dilemma is now staged before us in the origin story. The cursing that God brings is, is a rightful judgment of their disobedience. Judgment comes because they have rebelled against God. And yet, woven through the cursing judgment of God is this amazing thread of his mercy. Adam and Eve must have stood there and heard the words from God Almighty with stunned awe. When they rebelled, they covered and hid and it tells us because they were afraid. Because the promise of God was their disobedience would bring death. And so when they are confronted by God, they are expecting to be instantly, forever separated from God. Right then and there. And as these cursing and this judgment comes... They see revealed then the thread of God's mercy. For the first time in history, God's mercy is observed. They are not instantly and forever separated from God. There will be pain in bringing forth children. You will continue in the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. There will be pain in toil, and yet you shall eat bread and the fruit of the land. 
Adam lives for 930 years in stunned awe of the mercy of God. We see in these cursings that the dilemma is put on the stage. We have the problem of sin and its results and all of the the destruction and sorrow that is around us and the separation from God and yet woven through that is mercy. The world is in need of saving. The world is in need of redeeming. The brokenness that we feel and experience is not just a result of this sin, but the perpetuation of sin from this point forward. Because we recognize and we know that the pain, the strife, the conflict, the toil that we experience in life has begun with this sin, but has been multiplied by the sins of us all. We need to understand something, not just of the cursing, but something about covering. Covering is necessary. Adam and Eve, earlier in chapter 3, they respond to the shame of their disobedience by trying to cover up their nakedness, don't they? The result of their rebellion against God, it brought immediately a felt alienation from God in the instant of their sin. As a result, they do what has been perpetuated through the ages. They try to fix it themselves, don't they? We have recorded for us in verse 7 that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They tried to, to fix the situation themselves, to create a covering by their own efforts. And this effort to cover over guilt and shame is perpetuated throughout human history, throughout the ages. And we know this, right? Guilt is a universal human experience, isn't it? Because sin is a universal human experience. Sin is, is, is the reality that we are in. And since this, the record of this primeval events that we have before us in the origin story, their human effort to cover themselves has gone out in an echo to every one of us. The picture of them sewing fig leaves together in our minds, it's somewhat silly, isn't it? In fact, I brought some for you so you can see. <laughs> the, the somewhat the futility of their efforts. Now, I'm not a seamstress, but I'm not sure any of us are that good. We take these fig leaves and, and we follow their leads so often in our own efforts to cover over our guilt and shame. 
We're still trying to fix the problem ourselves. We're still trying in our efforts to cover our own shame and our own sin and our own guilt. Let me just give you four categories of ways that that we are trying to do this even today. We try to cover over our guilt and shame with, with holding tight to a perspective of our own personal righteousness. We have created, we've all done this, over time, we've created a a level of of our own personal standards, haven't we? Standards that conveniently we can meet, that we can get over. And and we have this self-awareness of our own level of righteousness, right? And we know, we know, we recognize, we try to be humble about it. We, we know, oh, I know I can make some mistakes here and there, but, but based on what I've created, I, I've, I'm a good person. At the root of it, right? I have this, this personal righteousness, and, and that, that's enough to cover any of the mistakes and shame and guilt that I have. Or Another fig leaf of ours is we try to cover over our guilt with with good deeds. This is where we stack the case for that personal righteousness up. Here's all the evidence for it. Right? I, I wave people on in traffic all the time. I always put money in that Salvation Army jar around Christmas time. Well, I secretly wish they would stop ringing that bell. I'm generous towards others. I serve in the community. I serve in the church. We have a list of good deeds that we use as the fig leaves to cover over our own guilt and shame. If I just do enough, if I just do more, we end up, we end up viewing it as sort of this righteousness bank account. As long as I don't go into the red, I can keep this thing going and cover over my guilt. We try to cover it through self-justification by comparison of others. (laughs) We recognize that we often mess up, but then we look around at others and listen, we, we have the amazing ability to find faults in others as a means to cover up our own. We're real good at that one. This breeds judgment, gossip, slander, and pride. But we, we are real quick to cover over our own and point the finger over there. And we try to cover through self-preservation. This is where we just hide the ones we really don't want anyone else to see. We want to keep those things that we've observed in ourselves, the things that we've said under our breath, the thoughts that have come to our minds, just as long as others don't see that part of me. What are the ways that I can keep that hidden? Create barriers for others to not see that part of my soul. We all have these moments and thoughts and we all plan and plot ways to to cover over the hidden parts of our lives. Here's the problem. The problem with trying to use our own fig leaves 
it really only works when we have the wrong perspective of what sin really is. See, our perspective of sin often is from the lens of looking out in our own lives. Sin is always from the perspective of me looking out elsewhere. And so my definition of sin is is shaped then by my levels of righteousness and my comparison to the world around me. And that's how I often define sin. And that's the only way that these fig leaves will work. Have you ever considered what's going on here and how God responds and thought, that's a bit of an overreaction, isn't it, God? I mean, they took some fruit from a tree. Aren't there far worse things that could have happened? Certainly, there are far worse things. I mean, it wasn't as though that there was murder or rape or genocide. All they did was take some fruit from a tree. Was it really that bad for this reaction from God? We need to understand sin for what it is. We need God's perspective on this reality. See, sin is not so bad because because we can place it in comparison with other sins and other actions and other people. Sin's not so bad because of the degree to which we find it horrific. Sin is not so bad because sin, we need to see the atrocity of sin because it is rebellion against the one who is so good. Sin is rebellion against God and his goodness and his provision. We come to understand this through this representative action of our first parents. When they take this fruit and this response and destruction and all that comes around it is not because stealing fruit is so bad, but because it is rebellion against the command of the one who is so good. We need that perspective for all of our sin. And so we can recognize our efforts to cover our sin, they're futile. They will not work. We are incapable of covering ourselves. We cannot fix the problem. This is why the Bible throughout the pages speaks of humans being in bondage to sin, right? We're in bondage, unable to free ourselves from the problem, unable to escape. This is why the Bible speaks of us being dead in our sin. We cannot make ourselves alive. Which brings us now to the marvelous mercy of God woven through these judgments. Take a look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Their human efforts to cover their sin and guilt were insufficient. And so God, out of his mercy, provides the sufficient covering for their guilt. And notice 
that these are not just different leaves. They're skins from an animal. The wages of sin is death. And the cost of covering is death. So God, before Adam and Eve slaughters an animal and provides for them sufficient covering for their guilt. They would see the cost as for the first time blood was spilled to to pay for their redemption, to pay for their guilt. Blood is poured on the earth. An animal is slaughtered to cover their sin. Blood must be spilled to atone and cover sin. The promise in verse 15 that the seed of the woman will crush, will bruise the head of the serpent is a casting forward of the Son of God, Jesus, to come as the seed of the woman to be the only man not needing to cover his own sin, but to be the, the perfect atoning sacrifice for the guilt of all who would trust in him. His blood, Jesus' blood was spilled to cover the guilt of sinners. The marvelous mercy of God is on display. And notice, notice Adam's response as he stands in awe of God's mercy in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now we could miss that. But if we're paying attention, it was not many verses back in our Bibles where Adam was blaming God for this woman of death that you brought to me. Because of this woman, I have sinned and brought death. But the display of the marvelous mercy of God before the eyes of Adam, now in verse 20, has Adam changing his song and saying, she shall be called Eve, the mother of all living. Because God has been merciful to us. This cursing and this covering, this provision of God is a display of marvelous mercy in the origin story of redemption. And that brings us to our final point, the completing. Verses 22 to 23. The Lord God said, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God sends him out of the garden to work the ground, drove him out. Of the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim to guard the way of the tree of life. God takes counsel in the Godhead and declares that we cannot have the man in his state of rebellion and sin take from the tree of life and live forever in this state of rebellion. And so God casts him out from his presence and guards that tree of life with a flaming sword and a cherubim 
and says, there's no way for a man to come into the presence of God on his own. Only I can make the way. This show of separation, it continues throughout our Bibles. We read through the great story of redemption and we see this separation again and again, chapter after chapter, in symbol after symbol, until the climax of our Bibles when we see the Son of God sacrificed on behalf of sinners, blood spilled, and the curtain in the temple is torn down, opening the way of that separation from sinners to God, whereby we can enter the dwelling place of God Almighty. No longer in a state of sin. No, no. No longer trying to cover with fig leaves, but clothed with Jesus Christ himself. Wonderful news it is. Yes, clothed with Jesus himself. We, believer, you will one day stand before the one who has made you. And he will look upon you and see the garments of his son and say, come in and take rest. And this morning, this morning, if you are here hearing this truth and you recognize that you have not responded to that reality, to trust in Jesus alone, and your life is still filled with the toil of trying to fix the problem yourself in all of your efforts, and you think, you don't understand, I'm, I'm just too bad. I'm just too broken. I'm just too separated from God. He doesn't want me. Yes, he does. And he has gone to the uttermost efforts to call to you this morning from his word that there is a way of redemption. Trust in Jesus today and know the marvelous mercy of God for you. It is an abundant grace and it is for you to know it and then to live by it, to live under it all the days of our life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this word this morning, for making clear for us the why for the way things are, for putting on display for us through your word the marvelous mercy and work of redemption that is here before us. You are a God eager to set sinners free. And so may we all respond with greater trust in your word this morning, loving you more, living for you more, obeying you fully because you are good and worthy of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.